Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, November 17th, 2023. For the weather outlook today, we're going to start out with sunshine, but it will give way to clouds later, and tonight it will be mild with occasional rain. Highs today will be in the low 60s, and it will dip down into the 50s tonight. Over the weekend, we've got a real mixed forecast. Saturday will be highs of nearly 60, but it will be windy with periods of rain. On Sunday, the sun comes back out, but the highs will only be in the 40s. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For the numbers game on Thursday, November 16th, the midday drawing numbers were 8, 2, 8, and 1. For the evening drawing, we have numbers 3, 4, 6, and 2. For the mass cash drawing on Thursday, we have numbers 15, 21, 24, 27, and 30. On Wednesday, the power draw, Powerball numbers were 3, 4, 51, 53, 60, and the extra ball of 6. And finally, for Tuesday's Mega Millions drawing, we have numbers 29, 35, 59, 61, 69, and the extra ball of 22. The lead story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, It Was Like They'd Uncovered a Treasure. After 26 years, Cape Cod Message in a Bottle is found in France. By Heather Swales McCarran of the Cape Cod Times. A message in a bottle. It's such a simple thing. A bottle with a note rolled into a cylinder and pushed inside, but tossed them together into the wide ocean, set them adrift on the swells, and they become something else. A story awaiting an ending, an appeal to strangers, an adventure waiting to unfold. This is the story of such a message in a bottle, deposited in the Atlantic Ocean, filled with the hope of a Cape Cod boy named Ben Lyons, a fifth grader from Sandwich, that someone, somewhere, would find it, read his message, and send back a reply. Twenty-six years later, someone did. Recently, a brown envelope mailed via La Poste France arrived at Sandwich Public Schools, addressed to Mr. Benjamin Lyons, grade 5H, Anne 1997, with a reply inside from retired French fisherman, Hubert Hurot. The last week of October was when we received it, said Sandwich Public Schools Superintendent Joseph Maruzek on Wednesday. It was sent to the Forestdale School, which was the address that was put into the message. At first, the staff wasn't sure what to make of it. It was addressed to Ben Lyons in fifth grade at Forestdale School, but Forestdale is now a pre-K to second grade school, said Brandy Clifford, assistant principal at the Oak Ridge School. There was no Ben Lyons enrolled. When the envelope was forwarded to Oak Ridge, which now houses grade five, the staff consulted the student data platform to figure out whose class Ben Lyons was in, but of course they couldn't find him, she said. 
then our secretaries were like, all right, we can't find this kid. So they opened the envelope and they found the letter that Ben initially wrote and a letter in French from the fisherman, she said. It was as if a pirate's hidden booty had been discovered. You would have thought they found the bottle on the beach themselves. That's how excited they were, Clifford said. It was like they'd uncovered a treasure. It was 1997 when Ben Lyons, a student in Frederick Hamila's class at the Forestdale School, penciled a note that began, Dear Beachcomber, thank you for being kind enough to pick up my bottle. It went on to explain he and his class were studying ocean currents in science class, and they dropped bottles into Nantucket Sound to see where they went. It contained questions asking about where and when the bottle was found and in what condition and asked for a response to be sent to the Forestdale School. On August 11th, Uriot found the bottle on the beach of Les Gravières et Les Sables d'Olon, Vendée, a seaside town on the Bay of Biscay in western France, according to the French newspaper Ouest France, which reported on his unusual find. Picking up rubbish on the beaches of Les Sables d'Olon, Vendée, is the daily life of Hubert Ariot, 71 years old, the article reads. In his response to Ben, written in French, Ariot tells how he found the bottle while picking up the beach during a fishing session, and that it had quelques coquillages col dessous, some shells stuck to it. Hamila, the teacher who had Ben Lyons in his class in 1997, remembers the project well. I did that project for a couple of years, he said, talking by phone from Florida on Thursday. He said at first they would put their messages seeking scientific information into the nearby Cape Cod Canal, and they'd always end up in places like Duxbury, Plymouth, Mashpee, Woods Hole, and other nearby locations. In 1997, the father of one of his students, who was a commercial fisherman, offered to deposit the bottle's father out so they'd have a better chance of escaping the Massachusetts coast. He put them in about 35 miles out, Hamila recalled. Within a couple of months, the students started to receive responses from further landfalls, including Ireland, Wales, France, and Morocco. I have a scrapbook of all the letters that were returned to kids in that class at home, said the Yarmouth resident. After that year, Hamila said, he stopped doing the project because of questions raised about the appropriateness of throwing the plastic bottles into the ocean. Hamila thought that was the end of it, until the bottle showed up in western France. I am amazed that it took this long, he said. Robert Todd, an associate scientist in the Physical Oceanography Department at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, said he heard about the bottle, but didn't initially realize it had been adrift for a little more than a quarter of a century. Clearly, they did a good job sealing the bottle back in 1997 so that it could stay afloat all that time, he said. He noted that the large-scale average currents at the surface of the subtropical North Atlantic are generally clockwise, moving along the east coast in the Gulf Stream, across the Atlantic at about the same latitude of France, then generally southward on the eastern side of the Atlantic and back to the west at tropical latitudes. On this side of the Atlantic, one might imagine that it drifted out of Nantucket Sound, then generally southward over the continental shelf, since that is the typical direction of currents, Todd said. Somewhere along the way, and most likely no farther south than Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, it could have been carried beyond the edge of the continental shelf 
and then entrained into the Gulf Stream to make its way north and east. Todd said the wonder comes in thinking about where the bottle drifted in the intervening years. The ocean basin, basin is filled with eddies that could have carried the bottle along any number of paths, he said. Given the long time, it's quite possible that the bottle took multiple loops around the North Atlantic as well. Superintendent Maruzak said he's found the story inspiring, capturing attention from many media outlets, from People magazine to the Boston news stations to the Boston Globe. I knew it was going to get a lot of attention, he said. It's a cool story and people want good news. Clifford also expressed amazement about the bottle's 26-year journey. It's fun to think about the bottle bobbing around in the ocean, she said, perhaps disturbed by the blow of a whale, skimming the surface as it fed, nudged by a curious sea turtle, or pushed along by the passage of a fast-swimming shark underneath it. At the school, Clifford said the students have seen the letters and have been asking a lot of questions. I think it's really interesting for our kids to think about. Not that we can have them throwing things into the ocean, but it's kind of neat to think about just how far something can travel, she said. The school system did reach out to Ben Lyons and his family and have turned over the envelope and its contents to them. Ben's parents, who still live on the Cape, also expressed amazement and excitement. Ben Lyons, who addressed the letter to a beachcomber so many years ago, is now grown up and living out of state. Was a born official's apology acceptable? By Rachel Devaney of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline born. Joni Linsky of Pocasset knows of at least three families who have pulled mezuzah, a traditional item that could identify the home of a Jewish family, off their doorposts. Linsky, who practices the Jewish faith, plans to install a camera surveillance system on her own property. Her Jewish friends and family ask her why she continues to wear a chai symbol, the Hebrew word for life, openly on a necklace. There is an underlying fear for Jewish people, even here, she said. Because of what's going on in Israel, and for the slurs that have been said with little to no consequences, it's so upsetting to me. In addition to the conflict between Hamas and Jewish people in Israel and rising anti-Semitism in the United States, Linsky refers to slurs like the one used by Carl Georgeson, chairman of the Bourne Historical Commission, at an October 10th Historic Commission meeting. Tuesday, a month after uttering the slur, Georgeson issued a brief apology as a crowd of about 50 people, including Linsky, looked on. At the last meeting, I made an inappropriate comment. I won't repeat it. I apologize to the committee and to the town and will be more careful in the future, he said. Rapid, inaudible apology, according to one born citizen. Jack McDonald of Pocasset also attended the meeting to hear Georgeson's apology, having initially heard Georgeson use what he called an ethnic slur at the October 10th Historical Commission meeting. Carl's rapid, inaudible apology was a piece of this puzzle. There is no great outcome to this process, only movement in a more tolerant and accepting direction, said McDonald, who wrote a letter to the Bourne Select Board after the October 10th meeting, asking them to address the remarks. As far as town officials, said Linsky, their first mistake was allowing a month to go by before an apology was even made. They missed a perfect chance to denounce this type of language and to educate our community, said Linsky. They've done absolutely nothing to help this situation.
How has the Born Select Board responded? In a previous interview with the Times, Mary Jane Mastrangelo, chair of the Born Select Board, told the Times that McDonald should have spoken up immediately at the October 10th Historical Commission meeting. If you're sitting in a meeting and someone says something like that, it's your responsibility to say, you know, Carl, that wasn't really a good thing to say. Could you rephrase or say an apology? Said Mastrangelo in a previous interview over the phone. Mastrangelo told the Times Tuesday that there has been no discussion among select board members about further penalties for Georgeson. The select board has no authority over that, she said. No public comment session was held on Tuesday to allow people to respond to George, said Linsky. And Linsky, who called the apology lackluster, was forced to remain silent, she said. As a result, many people at the meeting, she said, were confused by Georgeson's apology, which was given at the beginning of the 10 a.m. meeting. Most attendees had gathered to address a controversial demolition delay hearing in Katomet, said Linsky. Mastrangelo told the Times Tuesday that in order for community members to respond to Georgeson, an agenda item would need to be posted before the day of the meeting. Open comment isn't required for committees, said Mastrangelo. That's a part of open meeting law. Do people feel safe who are Jewish on Cape Cod? Once the meeting concluded, Linsky headed to her temple. Is an apology enough? I've thought so much about what constitutes an apology, she said. Georgeson could have made more of an impact if he had asked the Jewish community about how to make amends, she said. The apology was exactly what I thought it would be. It was barely audible and was verbatim what he was told to say by the town. It was rehearsed, said Linsky. For MacDonald, fighting hate speech, racism, and anti-Semitism is a work in progress. I hope next time this happens, Bourne, the select board, take the matter more seriously, he said. Dennis Leaders Against Nursing Home End by Zane Razak of the Cape Cod Times. South Dennis Healthcare has closed, according to Director of Social Services, Mela Sokola. On Thursday, staff cleaned and packed boxes at the 128-bed nursing home at One Love Lane, said Sokola. We rehomed 82 residents in 32 days, said Sokola. The most important part is getting patients situated in new homes. The next step is the actual closure, packing things, equipment has to go. We're at the end now. One Love Lane South Dennis LLC sold the site previously known as Eagle Pond Rehabilitation and Living Center to the Housing Assistance Corporation for $4.3 million, according to a deed recorded with the Barnstable County Registry of Deeds on September 28th. South Dennis Healthcare is operated by Woburn-based Nextelp Healthcare. The long-term care facility discharged its last resident and officially closed on November 3rd. Even though the closing plan approved by the Department of Public Health called for closure of the facility on or about January 30th, 2024. Sokola said the closure was very stressful and emotional for families, saying about 70% of the residents were long-term care patients and 25% rehabilitation but most were placed in another facility that was their first choice, she said. According to Next Step's website, the company currently operates 17 skilled nursing facilities in Massachusetts, including in Plymouth, Fall River, and Worcester.
Next Step has closed several facilities in recent years, including one in Wareham in 2021 and one in Dedham last year. South Dennis Healthcare has two state-of-the-art rehabilitation rooms, tracheostomy care, and nutrition services, according to Next Step's website. The facility also offered hospice and respite care. South Dennis Healthcare alerted state health officials on October 2nd of its plans to shut down on or close to January 30th. That notice is meant to be at least 120 days before the proposed closure date. The facility, in coordination with the State Department of Public Health, then held a November 1st public hearing to discuss the planned closure with town officials and those impacted by the closing. That hearing was intended to be held at least 90 days before the proposed closure date. Three days after South Dennis Healthcare had already closed, the Department of Public Health approved the facility's plan to close on November 6th. A message left with Next Step Healthcare was not immediately returned. Prior to the November 1st hearing, the Select Board voted unanimously on October 24th to authorize Town Administrator Elizabeth Sullivan and Chairman Chris Lambden to send letters to the Department of Public Health, South Dennis Healthcare, and the Cape Cod Commission objecting to the closure. We need healthcare centers on the Cape drastically, said Lambden during that meeting. We need to let them know that having them in the community is an asset and one that's utilized by a lot of people in the community. The town official's letter to the state agency and next step also blasted the proposed closing process as woefully inadequate. Instead, the town requested an in-person public hearing attended by representatives of the Department of Public Health, Next Step Healthcare, and the public, including a presentation of facts, discussion of alternatives, and a halt to closure. A second hearing, as requested by the select board, has not been held so far. On December 1, 2017, one Love Lane Operator LLC doing business as South Dennis Healthcare, a wholly owned affiliate of Next Step, began leasing and operating the facility according to the notice of intent to close. Next Step is now required to close the facility for a new use planned by the new owner according to its notice of intent to close. The new owner, the Housing Assistance Corporation, agreed to lease the nursing home building to the previous owner to allow the closing process to be completed, according to the notice. The property was sold for a profit of $800,000, according to the town's letter. Perhaps the fault lies with a system that allows the care of our most vulnerable to operate as a for-profit business, states the letter. One woman told the Times she was caught surprised by South Dennis Healthcare's November closing and believed she still had more time to find another bed for her mother, who stayed at the facility. She said her mother was moved unexpectedly to the facility's Plymouth location on November 3rd. One nice thing is a bunch of them, the residents, are still together and still have their friends nearby. What my mom said to me early on was, I will bloom where I'm planted, said the woman who requested anonymity. It's true, she's a miracle, and she gave me strength and patience from the way she handled it. When they do a close, you're not going to have 90 days. You have to act right away. And if you don't have a payer, meaning you have mass health pending, your loved one will not be offered a bed, said the person. 
You need to go above and beyond and get any assistance you can to help with that process. Sokola said the facility is only allowed to talk to a resident's number one healthcare proxy and said it can be common in nursing homes for another proxy to not hear information. During a September 18th planning board meeting, town planner Paul Foley said town building officials had received a request from Housing Assistance Corporation for confirmation that their proposal to create a family shelter program at the site is exempt from zoning under the Dover Amendment. The town's legal counsel had confirmed the proposed use is likely an exempt educational use protected by the Dover Amendment, said Foley at the time. Under that provision, Massachusetts state law exempts agricultural, religious, and educational uses from certain zoning restrictions by limiting what zoning requirements apply to religious and educational uses. To decide whether a proposed use falls under the scope of the amendment, a two-part test is employed to figure out if the proposed use is primarily educational. Our agency's focus is to address housing insecurity for residents in our region through a multitude of educational programs and housing projects, said Housing Assistance Corporation CEO Alyssa Magnata in a previous statement to the Times. Any property we acquire is intended to be utilized long-term to fulfill our well-established mission. Italy expands college funding. 25,000 students to benefit from aid by Sam Drysdale of the Statehouse News Service. A third of all UMass students will qualify for free tuition paid for by the new income surtax on the state's highest earners under a plan the Healy administration rolled out Wednesday to spend an expansion of state financial aid. The governor announced that $62 million in new program funding included in the fiscal 2024 budget she signed this summer will go toward expanding the Mass Grant Plus program, which her administration says will benefit approximately 25,000 students attending the state's community colleges, state universities, and the University of Massachusetts. The Mass Grant Plus expansion will cover the full cost of tuition and fees for Pell Grant eligible students, including the federal government determined expected family contribution and an additional allowance of up to $1,200 for books and supplies. It does not cover housing costs. Most Pell Grant recipients typically come from families with an annual income of $40,000 or less, or have otherwise difficult financial situations. About one-third of UMass students are eligible for Pell Grants, according to University President Marty Meehan as are 40% of students at Salem State University, according to its president, John Kean. Mass Grant Plus expansion by the Healy Driscoll administration is a game changer for State University students. It is simply historic. I know at Salem State University, 40% of our students are Pell eligible and hundreds of our students are considered as being from middle-income families. This unprecedented investment will allow more of the Commonwealth students to pursue their dreams of a college education. It's a win for them and a win for the future Massachusetts workforce, Keenan said in a statement. In addition to expanding financial aid for the lowest income students, the expansion program also seeks to alleviate college costs for middle income students. Those from families who earn between $73,000 to $100,000 annually in adjusted gross income 
will have their costs for tuition and mandatory instructional fees reduced by up to half of out-of-pocket expenses, the Healy administration announced Wednesday. Middle-income students must be enrolled full-time to qualify, while the grant funding will extend to full- and part-time Pell-eligible students. The financial aid only applies to undergraduate students, according to the administration. Ryan Forsyth, the vice president of student enrollment at Worcester State University, had this reaction. This is a great day. Of the 5,400 students enrolled at the four-year college, Forsyth expects about 1,000 students to benefit from the injection of cash into the state's financial aid system and the new qualifying criteria. We'll start implementing the new program guidelines today, Forsyth promised. Having 1,000 of our students benefit from this, we're very excited. The university, Forsyth said, has worked very hard to keep fee and tuition increases to a minimum to ensure a college education is affordable for students. As many students rely on financial support from immediate and often extended family members, parents, guardians, grandparents, and others, the infusion of cash into the system will decrease the financial burden on them as well. Another benefit Forsyth mentioned was the decrease in stress for students and a decrease in the non-school-related workload many students shoulder to pay for education. They could spend less time working and more time working and investing in themselves, Forsyth said, pointing out that Worcester State has a myriad of internships, practicum, clubs, and organizations that help round out an undergraduate education. Financial supports from the state will allow students the ability to participate in those extracurriculars and leave the university with an undergraduate degree and a world-class education. Both Forsyth and Nia Kurignan, a spokeswoman for Mount Wachusett Community College, praised the governor's investment in the state's institutions of higher education and her administration's expansion of access to education for students. Any aid our students can get is a tremendous help, said Kerrigan. She praised the governor's focus on expanding access to higher education for greater numbers of Massachusetts students. The community college has seen a massive influx of applicants and enrollments since the governor launched Mass Reconnect. We're seeing enrollment up by 34% in the spring semester, Kurignan said, explaining that the late summer rollout of the plan caught the college a bit flat-footed. Many of the core courses that the returning students needed were already full, so prospective students delayed their enrollment until spring. Enrollments in fall were still up by 12%, however, Kurignan said. A secondary benefit of the cash infusion into the state's financial aid system could be to increase enrollments in state schools. I believe students will see the financial benefit of attending a state school, Forsyth said. The program is retroactive to the start of the fall 2023 semester. The money had been approved prior to most schools starting when Healy signed the annual budget in August, though the program details were only released on Wednesday. The $62 million program uses a pot newly available revenues stemming from a tax increase on the state's highest earners. State budget writers had an extra $1 billion available this year for education and transportation investments, made available by a surtax voters approved last year on individuals' annual income over $1 million, 
$84 million of which was earmarked for Mass Grant Plus. The administration is estimating their plans to make college tuition free for Pell Grant eligible and up to half price for middle income students will cost $62 million, but is leaving the extra $22 million for wiggle room and other financial aid initiatives. A press release from the Healy administration says the remaining funds will also help implement a new law that allows qualified undocumented immigrants who have completed high school in Massachusetts to access state financial aid. Former Governor Charlie Baker launched Mass Grant Plus in 2018 to cover unmet costs of tuition and mandatory fees for low-income community college students. It started with a $7.5 million investment, which at the time doubled the amount available previously for community college scholarships. After years of significant investment in K-12 education, Advocates have seen the passage of the income surtax as an opportunity to make education more affordable at both the beginning and advanced stages of a student's career. We've reached the halfway point of our program today, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Linda Hanscom Brown Baker, Dateline, Osterville. Linda Hanscom Brown Baker, age 79, of Osterville, passed away peacefully on November 14th. She was the high school sweetheart and loving wife of Bruce Raymond Baker for 53 years, who predeceased her. Linda is lovingly remembered by her three children and their spouses. Her grandchildren, her brother-in-law, and his wife. Linda is predeceased by her husband, Bruce Baker, her mother and father, Virginia Hanscom Brown and Vernon Wayne Brown, as well as her brother Wayne. Linda was a graduate of Needham High School and Catherine Gibbs Secretarial School. Besides raising three loving children, Linda had a successful career which included vice president at Cape Cod Life Magazine, project managing the building of four homes in Osterville, and running Fabric to Go in Hyannis where her creative side shined. She loved gardening and was a member of the Osterville Garden Club for many years. Linda was a creatively talented person who also enjoyed tennis, boating, and the beach in both Osterville and Naples, Florida. Linda had many friends who she would socialize with regularly, as well as go on group trips with friends to the Caribbean. She loved her family and friends immensely. Donations may be made in Linda's name to the Alzheimer's Association. Services will be private. Arrangements are under the direction of Chapman Funerals and Cremations in Marston's Mills. Ronnie Lee Jameson, Dateline Orleans. Ronnie Lee Muncie Jameson passed into the presence of the Lord on November 12th. Ronnie was born on August 18, 1938, to the late Gardner E. Muncie and Mary Melissa Wilcox Muncie at Cape Cod Hospital in Hyannis. She was married to Bruce A. Jameson for 55 years until his passing on August 16, 2011. Ronnie is survived by her daughter and sons, daughter-in-law, grandsons, great-granddaughters, and many nieces and nephews and their families and cousins. She was predeceased by her son, Bruce Jameson, her sister, Jean Muncie, daughter-in-law, Pamela. Visiting hours will be held at Nickerson Funeral Home in Orleans on Monday, November 20th, from 4 to 6 p.m., followed by a service from 6 to 7 p.m. Her burial at a later date will be private. 
In lieu of flowers, please make a donation to the charity of your choice in Ronnie Jameson's name. For the full obituary and for online condolences, please visit the website of NickersonFunerals.com. Patricia Kumboris. Patricia Ann Kumboris Castungue of Hyannis passed away peacefully on November 15th at Cape Cod Hospital after a courageous battle with cancer. Born to the late George and Eleanor Costingway in Boston, Patty was raised in Boston and later moved to Cape Cod where she made her home for the past 40-plus years. Loving mother to her son Michael and his fiancée, her daughter Christina and husband Stephen. Loving grandmother to several, and she also leaves behind nieces and nephews. Services to be announced at a later date. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the American Cancer Society. Margaret Mary Canny Pierce. Margaret Mary Canny Pierce, age 99, passed away on November 14th while in hospice care after a long period of declining health in Buzzards Bay. Born in South Boston to the children of Irish immigrants, she grew up in Neponset, graduating from Boston Girls High School. She was one of the first female cashiers for the up-and-coming A&P grocery chain in Quincy, becoming a store manager when World War II opened up new opportunities for working women. Later, she traveled the Northeast and Canada, training staff at new stores. Margaret enjoyed skiing in the Austrian Alps and horseback riding at a dude ranch in upstate New York with friends. Margaret finished a 21-year career with the A&P when she married another career A&P employee, Richard Pierce, eventually moving to West Dennis on the Cape to raise a family. Devoted to their two young children, Margaret spent countless hours with them downhill skiing, water skiing, and trying to stay warm in the Cape Cod Coliseum as they learned figure skating and speed skating. As her children grew, she worked for 17 years at Ezra Baker Elementary School as a teacher's aide before retiring. However, she continued to work part-time as a grocery store cashier for decades, enjoying a second retirement from Shaw's in Harwich at age 85. During much of that time, she also worked at the Holiday Hill Mini Golf. Just three months short of her 100th birthday, Margaret is predeceased by many family and friends, including her husband Richard, a premature son, her father Eugene Canny, her mother Martha Brown Canny, her, and her siblings. Margaret is survived by her children Pamela and, his, and her husband, and Brian Pierce and his wife Andrea, six grandchildren, and many other family members. Her grandchildren remember her bus trips to Maine, wonderful stories, meals at the breakfast room in West Dennis or the Hearth and Kettle in South Yarmouth, loud sneezes, and her love of birds and John Wayne movies. A funeral mass will be held at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, November 21st at St. Margaret's Church in Buzzards Bay, with interment to follow at 12.45 p.m. at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the Friends of the Dennis Senior Citizens in South Dennis. Arrangements are by Chapman Funerals and Cremations in Wareham. To leave a message of condolence, please visit their website. Adele A. Corey, Dateline, Pocasset. Adele A. Corey, age 96, of Pocasset, passed peacefully at home surrounded by family on October 14th. She joins her predeceased husband, Robert Corey. 
Adele was a beloved matriarch who lived an active and fulfilling life as a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. She worked for years as a professional seamstress, dress designer, sewing instructor, and entrepreneur. She was born Adele Alice Kimito on March 24, 1927, in Boston, the daughter of Stanley and Anna Kimito, both Lithuanian immigrants. Adele grew up on a farm, the youngest of five children in Randolph, where she attended Stetson High School. She earned a postgraduate degree in dressmaking and tailoring from the Boston School of Practical Arts. She then furthered her education and teacher training at Boston State Evening School, followed by one year at Bryant and Stratton Business School. Her professional career began as a dress fitter at Bonwit Tiller in Boston. There, she was promoted to a dress designer and offered a position in New York, but her family decided she was too young to take that job. She went on to work at Priscilla Wedding Gowns in Boston as a seamstress. She taught dressmaking at Randolph Evening School for 20 years while raising her three children. Adele married Robert Corey in Randolph on May 1, 1949. They shared 58 happy years of marriage together. They enjoyed taking trips around the United States and to Europe together. In 1972, they moved to Pocasset, where they became actively involved in the community and St. John the Evangelist Parish. Adele was a member of the Women's Guild and was known for her hundreds of beautiful hydrangea wreaths she donated to fundraisers each year. Adele was very talented at many crafts. She brought an attention to detail and artistic creativity to everything she made. At age 55, Adele continued her professional career as a business owner on Cape Cod. In 1982, she opened the Country Peddler in Catawamut. She traveled all over the U.S. looking for the most unique crafts to showcase in her shop. Her popular country gift shop thrived until her retirement in 1991. One way Adele showed her love was through her cooking. She was happiest when the family gathered around her table. Adele's family particularly enjoyed all her traditional dishes, especially her annual Easter kasha. Adele joins her predeceased daughter, Pamela, who died in infancy, and her granddaughter, Allison Bowers, who died of breast cancer in 2020. She is greatly missed by her children, her grandchildren, and her great-grandchildren. The family invites you to a celebration of life for Adele at 10 a.m. at St. John's the Evangelist in Pocasset on November 20th. There will be a gathering in the church hall following the Mass. In lieu of flowers, please donate to a cancer research organization of your choice. Lawrence Richard Ricci. Lawrence Richard Ricci of South Dennis passed peacefully at his home, surrounded by the love of his family, on Thursday, November 9th. He was the devoted husband of Mary Lou Ricci, née Lavalli, with whom he shared an extraordinary love and special union for 62 years. Born in Wilbraham on May 31, 1936, he was the son of the late Tancredi and Irma Ricci, née Belli, and brother of the late Valentino Ricci of Wilbraham. In his youth, Lawrence attended and graduated high school from Wilbraham Academy where his love of education began. He went on to receive his bachelor's degree in business administration from American International College, a master's in education from Westfield State College, and an advanced graduate degree in education from the University of Connecticut. 
Larry was a dedicated elementary and middle school teacher and later principal in the Palmer, Massachusetts public schools. Over his 37-year career, he promoted an environment where his students understood that the classroom was for learning and injected his enthusiasm to pique his students' curiosity and keep their attention. Before his retirement in 1999, he became the first principal of his beloved Old Mill Pond School, which opened to 600 students from pre-K to grade five in 1991. He cared about his students and colleagues deeply and treasured the many friends he made along the way by holding fond memories of them in his heart. While he playfully quoted the words of George Bernard Shaw, those who can do, those who can't teach, the truth is that Larry was meant to impart the gifts of a strong academic foundation and some of the lessons that help us lead fulfilling and productive lives. Of course, to his four children, he shared these lessons and more because as an adoring father, fierce advocate, and exemplary role model, he was also their rock and biggest fan. In retirement, Larry cherished life on Cape Cod and his part-time job landscaping at Cumaquid Golf Club, where he enjoyed getting to know the college kids who worked alongside him every summer. He and Mary Lou also shared their love of fine dining, travel, memories made with old and new friends, and summer days spent with their children and grandchildren on the beautiful beaches of Dennis. In addition to his loving wife, he is survived and will be sorely missed by his children and his grandchildren. Family and friends are invited to pay their respects on Friday, December 1st from 10.30 to 11.30 at Doan Beal and Ames Funeral Home on Route 134 in South Dennis, followed by a mass of Christian burial at noon at St. Pius X Church in South Yarmouth. In lieu of flowers, donations in his memory can be made to the Palmer Public Library or Shriners Hospital in Springfield. To share condolences, please visit the website of Doan, Beale, and Ames in Dennis. Paul Edward Vincent, Dateline, South Dennis. Paul Edward Vincent, age 76, died on Tuesday, November 14th. Born to Ida Remillard and Alfred Freddie Vincent in Wittensville, Massachusetts, Paul is survived by his wife of 51 years, Cecile. His daughters, grandchildren, brother Leo, brother-in-law, and many nieces and nephews. He is predeceased by his sister Marie. Paul grew up in Grafton, attended high school in Casadega, New York, served his country in Vietnam in the Army, and we thank him for that service and graduated from UMass Amherst with a degree in accounting. After a distinguished business career, Paul retired in 2008 and moved to Cape Cod full-time. Since then, he and his wife have spent winters in Florida, enjoyed traveling abroad. He loved being Papa to their five grandchildren. Visiting hours will be held on Monday, November 20th from 4 to 7 p.m. at Doan, Beale and Ames, on Route 134 in South Dennis. On Tuesday, November 21st, gather for the processional at Doan Beale and Ames between 9.30 and 10.30. The funeral service will begin at 11 a.m. at St. Pius X Catholic Church on Barbara Street in South Yarmouth. In lieu of flowers, the family asks that any donations be made in Paul's names to the VNA Association of Cape Cod Hospice, Cape Cod Alzheimer's Family Support Center in Brewster, or the Family Pantry of Cape Cod in Harwich.
Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Grandparent Fears for Grandson Who Was Pressured to Go to College. Hi, Carolyn. My grandson doesn't want to go to college, but my daughter has pushed so hard that he finally gave in. But he's unhappy about it. He also has to leave his best friend and girlfriend of many years to go to the college in another state, which is adding a lot of stress. I told him to follow his heart and I would support whatever he chooses. Now my daughter is telling me not to undermine his success. I know that depression is a serious issue with many college students, and I don't want him to become depressed. I would appreciate hearing your thoughts and suggestions. Signed, Grandparent. Dear Grandparent, I won't pretend to love the idea of his mom pushing him so hard that he finally gave in. But your putting yourself in the middle of a parent-child issue when you're not the parent isn't the remedy I have in mind either. You know it's a not-your-business issue, I hope, without my saying so. What you may not realize is that it's a timing issue, too. Now that the decision is made and your grandson is going, you want him to succeed, yes? Yet urging him to follow his heart when things get tough and he wants to quit on himself and go home to his besties will only undermine his resolve when he needs it most. Because college involves change on so many levels. Assuming the window was ever open for you to argue against his going to college, and again, this is debatable, it closed the minute he said yes. That's when it became the job of everyone who loves him to back the decision he made. Even if your grandson makes a reasoned decision someday to live his adult life back in his hometown, with his best friend and girlfriend at his side, he will be a more confident and resilient adult for having forced himself out of his comfort zone. I suspect you'll find out that's why your daughter pushed so hard when you reopen the topic to apologize for meddling. Interfering with that process of his testing his own limits is the risk I'd be most concerned about. Yes, depression is a significant problem on campuses. It's also a problem for people who don't challenge themselves, try new things, and face their fears. It's a problem for people who pass up college or service, training, travel, to stay nestled in their friend circle only to have it move away or break apart. Point being, we can all cherry pick our arguments to support what we believe. If we want to help the people we love, though, then we need to get over ourselves and our preconceived notions and concentrate on believing in them, in their ability to deliver on whatever they ask of themselves. This includes reassuring them that at any challenges they ultimately don't rise to were still worth taking on just because they thought they were. Even a disastrous choice is more admirable than joining the told you so chorus. Not that I think you'll do this necessarily. It's just something to file away in case the impulse strikes. Historical Society of Old Yarmouth hosts Thanksgiving service for all by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. With Thanksgiving just around the corner, the Historical Society of Old Yarmouth invites members of the public to share a little thanks during the annual Thanksgiving ecumenical service, November 19th at Kelly Chapel. An ecumenical service differs from a traditional Christian service, according to coordinator and trustee Judy Legrand, because it's meant to appeal to people from all faiths. It's not so highly religious that it would offend anybody of any particular creed, she explained. The service is a long-standing tradition of the Historical Society, 
with the Grand coordinating the event on and off for almost a decade. During the service, the potbelly stove is lit to warm the chapel. A celebrant calls a general call to worship and traditional hymns are sung. We pick a different celebrant for the service each year from a different community church or synagogue, Legrand said. We've had a Buddhist, different things like that. This year, the Reverend Andrea Seuss Taylor from St. David's Episcopal Church in South Yarmouth will deliver the call to worship. Elizabeth Bader, Robert Mesrop, and Suzanne Norman will provide the music. The service is not only intended to bring people together, but also to be a reminder of the area's rich history. We try to both honor the Wampanoag people who saved the lives of those of us who are descendants of the pilgrims, Legrand said. The only pilgrim we know that came and settled here in South Yarmouth was Stephen Hopkins and his family, but there are several other people around who have, like I have 13 or 14 ancestors that came over on the Mayflower, various other people they descended from who are here on Cape Cod, so it's a part of their history too. On the day prior to the service, trustee Bob Kelly and educational consultant Marcus Hendricks of the Wampanoag tribe and Nipmuc Nation will take guests on a tour of South Yarmouth's reservation. We want to give a sense of the fact that these were once Wampanoag lands, and we are a part of that history too, Legrand said. The Historical Society of Old Yarmouth's Thanksgiving Ecumenical Service will take place at 3 p.m. on November 19th at the Kelly Chapel. The service is free to attend, but the chapel can only hold about 60 guests, so be sure to get there early to snag a spot in the pews. The tour of South Yarmouth's reservation will take place at 9 a.m. on November 18th. Tickets are $15 and can be purchased online at hsoy.org events. Other best bets on Cape this week. Christmas begins with the Rooster Crows Christmas Fair. The Christmas season does not wait for Thanksgiving to pass, and neither does the West Parish of Barnstable United Church of Christ. The annual Rooster Crows Christmas Fair is set for 2 p.m. November 17th at the historic 1717 Meeting House and Jenkins Hall on Meeting House Way in West Barnstable. Stop by to shop for some baked goods, handmade Christmas gifts and decor, hot cider, donuts, and more. Start your holiday shopping at the Falmouth Holiday Market. In Falmouth, Christmas is also starting early this year as the Falmouth Holiday Market and Gift Gallery kicks off November 18th. From November 18th to December 17th, more than 100 local artists and crafters will be selling their work for the holiday season, featuring potential gifts including handmade scarves, original artwork, and ornaments. The Falmouth Holiday Market and Gift Gallery will take place from 10 to 4 on November 18th at the Falmouth Art Center on Gifford Road in Falmouth. Admission is free. For more information, dates, and times, visit the website of falmouthart.org. Support Homeless for the Holidays with Cape Cod Senior Residences Bake Sale and Craft Fair. The Cape Cod Senior Residences Annual Bake Sale and Craft Fair will take place from 9 to 3 on November 18th. All proceeds from the event will go to Homeless for the Holidays, a nonprofit organization based in Bourne. The Cape Cod Senior Residence is at 100 Dr. Julius Kelly Lane in Bourne. Folk singer Ann Hills performs at Snow Library. 
folk singer Ann Hills performs November 18th at the Snow Library in Orleans. The concert is in honor of Linda Gordon, a fan of Hills who worked as a librarian at the Snow Library for over 30 years. Showtime is 2 p.m. in the Crane Room and admission is free. The Snow Library is located on Main Street in Orleans. Get your Thanksgiving pie at the Wacoit Congregational Church Bake Sale and Pie Bake. If you're looking to take one dish off your plate, stop by the Wacoit Congregational Church's Pie and Bake Sale. From 9 to 4 on November 21st, delicious treats such as pies, cookies, and breads will be on sale, just in time for Thanksgiving. The Wacoit Congregational Church is at Parsons Lane in Wacoit. Chatham Historical Society hosts the best bake sale in history. For those of you who don't want to bake but don't live on the Upper Cape, fear not, as the Chatham Historical Society is also hosting a bake sale on November 21st. From 9 to 1 at the Atwood Museum, delicious baked goods will be on sale in support of the Historical Society. Pies, however, can be pre-ordered for $25 for pickup. Orders must be filled by no, filed by November 17th online at the website of the Chatham Historical Society. For orders larger than three pies, call them directly. The Atwood Museum is located on Stage Harbor Road in Chatham. Sunny Gatta to speak at Garden Club of Yarmouth Meeting. Sunny Gatta is back for another Garden Club appearance on Cape Cod, this time with the Garden Club of Yarmouth. Gatta, a floral designer with over 30 years of experience, is guest speaker at the club's November meeting at 1.15 p.m. on November 21st at the Yarmouth Senior Center on Forest Road in West Yarmouth. A $5 donation is requested at the door to attend. Post Thanksgiving fun at the Martha's Vineyard Film Center. If you're looking for a way to sit back and let loose after the stress of Thanksgiving, the Martha's Vineyard Film Society has something up its sleeve. At 7.30 p.m. on November 25th, join comic Chris Zito, special guest Marty Nadler, and host Gary Marino for a night of laughs during their Thanksgiving recovery show at the Film Center. Tickets for the show are $30 and can be purchased online at the website of the Martha's Vineyard Film Society. Cape Cod restaurant owner created AI to track menu costs, how it works, by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Dining out is a popular activity on the Cape and Islands, both for seasonal visitors and year-round residents. But with food prices skyrocketing, restaurateurs often face a tough choice between raising all prices or simply taking the most expensive dishes off the menu. We would have had to stop serving short ribs, which is a dish we're known for, said Stephen Latassa Nix, who co-owns the Provincetown restaurant Strangers and Saints with his husband and business partner, Fred Latassa Nix. Instead, Stephen created Stellar Menus, a computer program that tracks ingredient prices in real time. And after seven days of price increases or decreases, recommends changing prices for an individual dish. The Provincetown restaurant increased the price of its short rib dish by $14 from $32 to $46 and let customers decide if they wanted to order the house specialty. Servers understood that only one dish was going up and they understood why. They could communicate that to customers, he said. Latassa Nix took stellar menus to market 18 months ago. 
Now, at dozens of restaurants, the artificial intelligence program is helping owners maintain a healthier profit margin while still giving diners a choice, Latassa Nix said. Based on Strangers and Saints' experience, Latassa Nix made Stellar Menus a subscription service that for $129 a month tracks prices of major ingredients on a restaurant's menu. The system works with each eatery's point-of-sale system, updating prices in the cash register and calculating price changes to be printed on paper menus or accessed via a QR code. We took it to market 18 months ago and started selling it to restaurants across the U.S., he said, noting Stellar Menus is being used in eight or nine states and in 16 Provincetown eateries. Steve Katsarinis owns Yolqueria and Mezzaterranean, restaurants serving brunch and Mediterranean-inspired small plates and cocktails for dinner, respectively, at different times of day from the same building at 401 Commercial Street. The cost of the subscriptions is relatively small, he said. So in about two weeks of using Stellar Menus, the savings covered the cost for the season. The restaurateur said he hopes to use data supplied by Stellar Menus tracking to spot new food trends. The system alerts restaurants when there is a price change of 10% in either direction based on seven days of trends. In the past, Katsurini said, I couldn't easily change the menu. So if the chef wanted to add something, it was as a verbal menu. It's a lot more flexible this way. The good news for you at the date night dinner? Prices shouldn't always go up, Latassa Nix said. They should also go down. We close today with a poem from this month's offerings of the winners chosen in October for the monthly Cape Cod Times Poetry Contest. James Langan is a retired English teacher and technical writer. While working for a Hyannis-based software company, he became involved with a group of poets who met regularly in the historic Geyer Barn. This is his work, Transitions, Solstice. Do you see the waters of the inlet spread like a silk cloth on a table? Gulls skimming tidal pools spiral in the air, dropping mussels on the beach below where they will lie black, shining secrets in the silencing snow that will cover them. Can you feel the snow in the quiet of the day, snow that will bring sleep? Do you feel the sleep in the slow suck of water from the soil, sense it in your eyes grown heavy in this bleary sun? Do you wish to close your lashes as this dry beach grass folds upon itself? Close your eyes and see how silently the earth moves on without you. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.